Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hello there, fellow humans. Today we're talking about entrepreneurship, and I think this is hopefully of particular interest to anyone who's trying to think of a, a project to do on top of work or aligned to work, but don't necessarily want to or have the risk appetite to go out and be an entrepreneur with all of the risk that that entails. My guest is Ben Rahili, who, while at Deloitte as a consultant in Australia, became the co-founder and then the chief operations officer of the Invictus Games Sydney, which was held in 2018. For those of you who don't know, the Invictus Games was started by Prince Harry and it's focused on an Olympic Games type format for veterans, particularly disabled veterans, in an adaptive sport program like wheelchair rugby. And it's an incredible event and Ben talks beautifully around his role and how he sort of managed his commitments between you know his day job and, and his entrepreneurial program and then how that sort of all ramped up. We're going to kick this one off with a little bit of Invictus Games audio with Prince Harry. You are the unconquered generation. It's heavy competition, but you're loved here be on a team with my fellow military members, this is an experience that I'll never forget. Invictus Games represents what sport should be about. For some, the gold medal is actually just being here. To show them that I can be the proper me and the person I can recognize. It's life changing, it is. I get to spend more time with my dad. That's the most important thing. <laughs> you never know what you end up being good at until you try it. Instead of seeing, oh, I can't do this, it's, well, I can't do it this way, I can do it this way, though. If you know the motto, I am master of my fight. That is giving more hope and more strength for the wounded warrior. The message is want to find the reason not to do sport and not to wake up from the bed. If you want to do it, you can do it. The friendship you make here is just forever. Everyone's here to help us and we will help to help everyone else. It's just amazing to see people that have gone Everybody here, we can do it! The support system on the ground here at Invictus is something unlike any other. 
because it's not just cheering on your own, but realizing that by the end of this week, your own becomes everyone in the Invictus family. The secret to the success of these games has been accepting that mental health is the real key to recovery. Our competitors have helped turn the issue of mental health from a sad story to an inspiring one. They want to live rather than just be alive. We'll see you in the Netherlands in 2020. Ben, thanks very much for coming on to the Antitoxin podcast today, mate. I really appreciate you having, uh, coming on. I know you're a very busy man. Not at all. It's, it's, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's great, great to be here and, and great to chat. So, mate, you and I both served in the military. We, we knew each other but never, never worked together through, um, through the training stuff. But I guess running quickly through you know, the, the military stuff and then into the consulting world and then how all of that led to you know, coming up with the idea to launch Invictus Games. Yeah, cool. So, so my background is, you know, the Navy. Obviously, I think we overlapped a bit at the, the Defence Academy. You might have been a year or two ahead of me. You know, I, I, as I always describe, I went from one boarding school to another when I joined the Navy. Had had more fun than, than is uh, probably strictly legal in, in many ways there. But uh, went to sea. Had a great time great time there as well and then uh, about three or four years into sort of being at sea I, I completed my master's in sort of international relations uh, related area and, and went off and worked for government for six years which was you know in sort of a fascinating area but um, sort of government uh, as we all know can be quite a restrictive environment so, so moved moved across to, to Deloitte uh, strategy and operations practice uh, in in Canberra with a big focus on public sector defense um, in particular yeah that was I always say sort of joining a big consultancy is a, a, a fantastic stepping stone sort of out of a military and government background. Huge, steep learning curve, which, which can be stressful at times. You know, big, big cultural change, particularly coming from government, which, you know, the, the cliches are true, is fairly process orientated towards consulting, which, you know, has a big drive on, on delivering the outcome. And But just the, the broad array of functions that you need to be across is, you know, a huge learning curve, but a fantastic learning curve for someone coming out of the military and sets them up really well for the next steps. So it was, you know, work, working away there, you know, with, with some good projects, some less less good projects. And then sort of, you know, it was sort of serendipity, really. I'd, I'd been there for perhaps two, two and a half years when the, the Wallaby captain, uh, Stephen Moore, um, you might remember in his sort of first minute or two as, as captain of, of the Australia, the Wallabies, injured his knee. And he, he had sort of a relationship with, with Deloitte pre-existing and so you know it was, it was full credit to him that he uh, during his rehabilitation rather than doing what a lot of professional and elite sportsmen would do you know do their rehab then then spend the afternoon playing xbox he, he came and worked for deloitte he sort of had an interest in organizational change management organizational culture and so through himself at the human capital practice we uh, he, he him and i were working on a project together we went up to, to Darwin as part of that project and were invited to, to play a game of wheelchair rugby at the Soldier Recovery Centre. That was sort of good fun. Um, didn't think too much more of it. And then that weekend, I sort of received a text message from him saying, hey, you see Prince Harry's Nick Dar idea. I sort of, you know, did a, did a quick Google and saw that the first Invictus games were on and they've been playing, you know, amongst other sports, wheelchair rugby. That's pretty cool. And we sort of um, bashed the idea around and and you know, sort of, it sort of circulated around our immediate workspace at, at work, and then eventually he and um, one of our partners at Deloitte went off to a, another fundraising event for, for Soldier On, 
and uh, I think he got into his ear and, and came back and said, yeah, let's let's do this. So we sort of did some, you know, initial, very initial sort of exploratory work around it, you know, concepts, you know, rough order of magnitude, budgets, uh, et cetera. You know, our initial thinking was that we'd, we'd get them to Canberra because that's where we're all based. Uh, Steve was then captain of the Brumbies, so we were sort of uh, pretty, um, had, had that sort of Canberra focus. So that was all sort of late 2014 and then in early 2015 he went off and saw the Governor-General. He knew obviously the Governor-General through Rugby Australia where um, Sir Peter was a, a board member and as you can imagine, because he was all, all for it, so connected us up with a few people including the Chief of Defence Force, Mark, Mark Binskin at the time, who was, he was supportive but uh, having to pay the bills for it was probably less bullish about it than uh, than the Governor-General and sort of asked us to do a feasibility study. So we spent 2015 doing the feasibility study. We pulled together a steering group, um, what we call a steering group of sort of, you know, senior eminent Australians from both sort of, you know, if you call it the demand side, so, you know, people out of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Defence, et cetera, and sort of on, on the government bureaucrat side, but, and then, but, you know, just as importantly, some senior sort of equivalently senior people out of industry, uh, funnily enough, most of which have had defence backgrounds but could speak very much to the commercial side and the commercial feasibility of it all. And we presented our feasibility study to them in September. They endorsed it. And then in, in March 2016, Patrick Kidd, who's a you know retired sort of 30-year soldier, um, 20 in the British Army, 10 in the Australian, retired brigadier, he'd come on board. Him and I took it across in, in March 2016 to, to London and presented the case to Prince Harry and the, and the trustees of the foundation. And off the back of that, we're, we're given the, the hosting agreement for, for the Games and all of a sudden got very real, very quick from that point in. Fantastic, fantastic. And so, you know, one of the reasons I was really keen to speak to you about this is, one, it's a terrific story, both in terms of the Games and what it's meant for so many people, so many veterans, particularly those with disability and you know, I, I certainly so know some of those guys and, and some of the guys who were in the, in the game, so I, I know what it meant for them. But also just from a, a startup story, because it, it really was just, you know, as you've said there, a couple of blokes coming up with an idea off the back of, a, of an opportune meeting, you know, sort of hustling your way through meeting the people with the influence to, to kind of make something happen. So everything that you've just spoken about is very much a, an entrepreneurial story and, you know, listeners to the podcast will kind of hear more about entrepreneurism, which, which is fine. It's good for a lot of people, but in, in so many respects, it's just not as powerful as what you have done, which is classed as entrepreneurship and entrepreneurism because you've, you've had an idea pretty left of center, but then instead of going out and starting your own thing with your own resources, huge amount of risk, firstly, but then also you don't have the resources behind you to really make it happen. Somehow you were able to leverage the support that you had inside your employer of Deloitte to not just to get them to give you the time to do this, you know, so you could still support your family and pay the mortgage, et cetera, yeah. but actually to put the weight of the Deloitte brand behind the project as yeah. well. How did you do that? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And I think, yeah, at the time, I felt, you know, particularly as, as we sort of got into 2016 and, and we we're sort of setting it all up and going, I, I always felt throughout that we were in a really fortunate situation that we had the sort of the excitement and the fun 
of a startup. Um, you know, we we're, were breaking new ground both internally within Deloitte, but externally we were getting you know amazing access. People just willing to support us, but. We didn't have sort of the risk of doing it from an entrepreneurial um, perspective. You know, I, I sort of have, you know, <laughs> I have utmost admiration for people like yourself who are sort of willing to put it all on the line for a belief. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have quite that level of personal risk tolerance to enable me to do it. So, you know, I think, you know, from, from that perspective, we were in a really fortunate position. I think you touched on the brand and, and I really do think that that is something that helped us externally. I mean, I think, you know, most simply when we when we went and presented to Harry and, and the trustees of the foundations, you know, they're, they're serious hitters. And the fact that it wasn't, you know, PK and Ben with with a with a with an idea, it, it had the backing of of a firm, you know, and and that meant we had the capabilities to do the cost modelling and and do you know commercial feasibility and so forth. But more that you know that having the, the brand of a of a big company behind it, you know, carried a lot of water. I think the internal piece is really interesting. I think, and how we were sort of able to create momentum there. I think if I go back to the external piece, I think. I touched on it sort of on the intro, but but one thing that we did really well, and and it lended us a lot of credibility, both sort of domestically in Australia, you know, amongst the stakeholder groups in Australia that we needed, but also when we took the idea across to the foundation, was pulling that steering group together that oversaw our work. So, you know, as I said, it had Chief of Defence Force on it, really important from a titular position. And that came with cash as well because he bought into it and full due to him as an individual went, went and raised our, our seed funding and got a commitment to that within within 72 hours of that first meeting. So that was really important. But the fact that it wasn't just Deloitte's bid by itself and it wasn't PK and Ben and Steve's bid that, that was taken across, it was a, it was a feasibility study conducted by, by Deloitte but endorsed by the Chief of Defence Force, a band two from the Department of Veterans Affairs that had had the consideration of you know Jeff Jones, who who's the the CEO of TG Group, massive conglomerate that you know one of its arms is is Ticketek, but you know huge commercial now, event management, management, etc. Glenn Keyes, another you know amazing sort of ex defence entrepreneur, you know, former Canberrian of the Year, etc. Had that sort of rigor behind it to both you know test the underlying assumptions of of the feasibility study, but then endorse it meant that when we took it overseas, it was seen as, you know, a sort of a whole of Australian effort for, for the games, not not one particular pocket doing it. And I think, you know, the, the language that PK re- used a lot and, I, and, and it was good language was we weave people into the web continually. Right. And obviously at that senior level, it was at the, at the steering group level, um, but at the, you know, but we, we constantly weave people at all levels in, into the web and got them sort of emotionally brought into the concept which is it's a relatively easy thing to buy into emotionally because of all the amazing stories that come out of it, you, you know, and, and then sort of you know, the fact that you've got a prince that supports it and, and so forth gives it that sort of profile and cachet. But sort of weaving people into the web continually was, was something we were doing. In terms of the internal Deloitte story, I think there's a timing thing here and I think there's a whole other sort of part to your question, I think, about the power of companies to do good. And I think that's almost one of the legacies that came out of the games. But park that for a second and come back. And I really think it's a timing thing. I think if we had said way back in August 2014 that, hey, Deloitte's going to put two and a half to two and three quarter million dollars worth of effort into getting a seven day event here. We're going to second, you know, relatively senior people for extended periods of time. We're going to have people from cross service lines all supporting it. Actually, you know, come the day of the race, we're going to have volunteers from all around the nations and stuff. I really think we would have scared a lot of people off, and they would have, you know, they they would have 
gone, you're crazy. But instead, what we sort of did is we almost took it bit by bit. And at each step, it sort of just became natural that, that we would take it to the next step, almost to the point that, you know, the, the thing sort of grew organically within Deloitte. Everyone was supportive of it until almost the, probably where it became real to sort of senior Deloitte people was in the launch that we conducted in mid-2017, in June 2017, when, you know, finally Harry was out here, you know, senior partners got to meet him individually. And I think that's when it sort of dawned on people that, wow, this is this is a serious thing and Deloitte's doing seriously good good work sort of by, by, by getting behind it. So what was your initial pitch? How, how did you go to them and say, hey, we've got an idea. We want to be able to rally the, the firm around this idea. We think the firm can benefit. What was the initial? So it's, I think it's amazing what you were saying. You, you, it almost, yeah. you, you ate the elephant bit by bit and just Precisely. organically got the organisation with all of its power yeah. behind it. But yeah. what was yeah. the catalyst? You know, you had an idea and then you, you go to your boss and said, hey, I've got an idea, yeah. I want to help. Yeah, yeah. So I think, well, I mean, Deloitte has a, has a huge pro bono program going. So it was buying into that program. And I think, but the ability to do some, something singular, something large, that would have impact. And it was an impact that sort of correlated with lots of Deloitte's sort of corporate priorities, diversity, inclusivity, wellness, etc. So it really chimed with that. And then, you know, I was always very conscious early on to, to push a, a commercial benefit to it as part of getting the, the partnerships buy-in. And I would say things like, you know, how it correlates with Deloitte's uh, strategic initiatives and diversity, inclusivity and wellness. But then I'd often talk a lot about access and, you know, and, and you know, I'd say, you know, we'll get this going and, and one day, you know, we'll have Chief of Defence Force coming to our building to attend board meetings, et cetera, and wouldn't that be great for Deloitte's positioning within the market? And actually, I was, I was presenting this once to, to one of the senior partners and he said to me something that I sort of kept with me for the rest of my time. He said, don't worry about the commercial benefits, Ben, just do a good job. And those benefits will flow down the line. And for a firm like Deloitte, and you know, I've been here six years now, and, and and it's a great firm. But you know, these firms, as we all know, they count their nickels and dimes. And for the firm to take that sort of long-term view of it, I, actually, I was I was really impressed. And it's actually the way things have flown out. So we never Deloitte never got large branding rights for the games. We and, and that was sort of a, a conscious decision we made early on that we wouldn't push to have an overt branding position in and around the games and that actually brought us a lot of credibility sort of with you know senior decision makers ministers and and so forth who you know saw the work that we were doing and the lack of you know overt recognition that we got and were incredibly supportive of it so I think in some ways it was sort of it was almost like I was trying to to demonstrate the commercial benefit of doing this to, to people to you know the seniors within the firm but they almost recognised before me that we just needed to do the good work and, and, and that recognition recognition had flow. And it seems like a trend. So more and more firms are getting that long-term, you know, value of the organisation, of employee yep. engagement, I guess ultimately of shareholder return, but that's becoming, you know, a pillar, not the only pillar that firms are, yep. firms are focused on. It, yep. it seems like, I mean, I think this is a brilliant example, but probably not the only one and more and more firms seem to be doing this, which means that there's more and more opportunities for, you know, young go-getters like yourself who come up with an idea to pitch something internal to the firm to give something back to the community that doesn't necessarily just have a direct correlation to, to shareholder value. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I definitely agree. And I think 
uh, a lot of firms realizing these days that need to appeal more and more to the millennials and mm. millennials are more and more driven by purpose rather than you know shareholder value or you know whatever whatever your drives your company in you know, the financials so i think giving the firm that sense that this is the outcome that you can have and then driving that back through employee for employee motivation is, is incredibly powerful and i think firms are picking up on that and i think it's also you know, rather than sort of more traditional corporate social responsibility, I think big firms like Deloitte have this you know, broad array of capability. And by bringing all those capabilities in around one particular outcome, that's where you can have a really massive impact. Right. Yeah. So if Deloitte had to just cut a check, it would have actually been far less valuable than actually bringing their their true kind of national and global capability to bear to yeah. make it in reality. Yeah. That, I don't think it would have happened because it never would have got through those early tricky stages mm. without, you know, without people just sort of willing to, to wear the shoe lever out and so, uh, you know, roll the sleeves up, but do, do that really, really hard work that was required early on. You know, I think obviously $2 million late, late in the piece, sort of as, as we were revenue raising, would, would have been incredibly, would have been very useful, but we would, never would have got to that point without a firm like Deloitte being willing to sort of put its, its entire capability in, in behind it. Got it. So let's let's talk about it. So you, you've gone through the feasibility, you've got permission yep. from your employer to be seconded to this startup project. Yep. And now you're in there, you're, you're in a startup. And, yep. uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a fairly high pressure one, because everything comes down to where the microscope is on a seven day, a seven day, yeah, yeah. it's kind of never yep. been never been done before, or at least, you know, in, yep. in Australia. So what was that like? So First of all, I mean, it was a huge, huge step up in terms of, you know, at the time I was a manager within Deloitte and then going to be, you know, chief operating officer of a business that ended up, you know, $32 million business, 183 direct employees over and a broader community of about 5,000 when you sort of take into account the, the competitors, family and friends, volunteers, subcontractors, etc. And then, so I think that's a huge step up in its own right. But the funny thing about events is there's a very rapid life cycle and at almost each point of those life cycles, you're sort of changing focus of the organisation. So you need to sort of be changing the way you work almost on a monthly basis, even just the, the, the way the resource sort of curve you know, rapidly expands in, in, that, in the last couple of months before, before the games. That was a huge step up in its own right. I think it was sort of, you know, neither Patrick or myself were, were events people, so we're sort of operating in an industry that we're totally foreign for, which it, you know, in one sense was absolutely fascinating and exhilarating, learning all about all about a new industry and a, and a new way way of doing things. You know, we we're, we're, um, particularly Patrick with his sort of longer career in the army was able to use the the, sort of the frameworks and the, and the structures about sort of the, you know planning to help put a put a framework around around things. But it was also incredibly challenging just working in a different environment. I think in terms of, you know, if I take it back a step, though, the really tough period was probably actually a year before the formal comment started. In So we, we pitched to get the games and we're given the hosting agreement in about March 2016. And there were really pros and cons to having, having the prince around. Obviously, the prince being so directly involved in the whole thing, you know, he, he brings a tremendous profile, cachet. And that attracts a lot, a lot of really good stuff, not least of all sort of commercial support to the games, but can also bring the worst bear out of people who, who get into it for the wrong reasons or into it because, you know, perceived glamour of it, 
etc. And so there was some vicious politics going on, particularly on in the early early on in the days, you know, before we had proper resourcing, when it was literally Patrick, myself, and perhaps one or one or two others. And we had no cash, so we, we sort of couldn't we couldn't get resources. We were using the support of the broad Deloitte firm where possible. And they, they were really tough days where we really had to, to work hard. And, and at times it felt like the, the sensible thing would have just been to walk away. But we sort of knew that we had we were on the precipice of, of achieving you know something that we think was quite special. And so we sort of kept cracking away. And you're doing your day job at this point too, right? So this, yeah, is, right. this is basically yeah. an extracurricular activity that's obviously yeah. absorbing a lot of time and, and you know, you've, yeah. got a, you've got a young family. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So it was during that 2016 period, it was, it was exactly that. I, the way I sort of describe it is started off as a nighttime hobby, became a full, full day job and then became a, both a nighttime hobby and a, and a, and a full day <laughs> job. But yeah, and that was tough, you know. So you'd sort of come back from a full day at the office Obviously, we were working closely with people in, in, in London, so the Invictus Games Foundation, so lots of late-night phone calls, you know, wife and young kids. She's sort of thinking, what's this crazy thing you're, you're sort of working on? You know, what's this phone call you've got to hop on to rather than bathing in bed the kids and all of that? And so, yeah, that took a lot. And then, you know, the usual things, kids are sick and, you know, wife's having to work, so sort of balancing all of that is always tough. I suppose, you know, I, I come back to the fact, though, that, we had that sort of excitement, exhilaration of the startup, but but at least with with a young family and so forth, I, I knew that the job wasn't really on the on the line in in the same way that it is when you when you when you're really setting up a, a company. Yeah, which is just hugely powerful, and yeah, and I think for me the core message that I'd love you know people to take out of this is there's a way to create massive impact and do your own thing and have a, a kind of an entrepreneurial mindset without putting the entire family and and all of your savings etc. <laughs> on black and rolling yep. the dice and, you know, that's exactly yeah, yeah. What you've done and you've, and you've nailed it. Yep. So leading into that seven days, talk me through that. And you've now done, what, two years' work of leading up to, to, yep. to this. So what was your role during the seven days? Yeah, so it was interesting and it sort of came to that, you know, constantly changing, changing focus. Mm. So my role, I mean, it's sort of funny. People would often say, oh, you, you must be absolutely flat out now in that sort of in the immediate lead up to the games but but funnily enough sort of you know almost closer to we got to the games we had just this huge apparatus of 183 people most of them or all of them had done events before sort of knew what they were doing kind of took over and it was almost a surreal feeling as this sort of thing you created you almost I almost came a became an observer for as it was actually delivered my sort of day-to-day role during the games was we you know we ran um what we called a, a an outreach program so you know, it was very much we sort of reached that we, you know, we had, you know, around our legacy pillars, we looked to build, you know, tangible deliverables or tangible outcomes around around each 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 of the our sort of legacy pillars. And so we engaged with community to do that. So it very much sort of became that stakeholder engagement role, dealing with, you know, well, we had, we did all, so, all sorts of things, you know, from breakfast to sort of, uh, you know, lunches, as, as you can imagine, but we brought in other groups from, you know, Indigenous groups, et cetera, to, to sort of experience the games. And so I sort of, you know, became a sort of a, a, bit, a bit of a, a talking head, I guess, during, during the games itself. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So you, you create this baby, you start it from scratch, and then during the game day, you actually sort of sit back and watch it all unfold. And um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. And in your own words, what is the Invictus Games? What did it end up representing? What was the magnitude of it? And, and what do you think the legacy is? 
So I think we had our legacy strategy and, and the heart of that was was sport and increased veteran in, involvement in sport. And I think tied to that is sort of an increased acceptance and normalisation of adaptive sport. We had education, which was sort of a, a two-sided coin. It's about educating the public about the service and sacrifice that, that veterans make, but it's also about providing better education opportunities for veterans. It was about welfare, which is, you know, discussion around mental health and sort of normalising that conversation. And, you know, I think that that occurred, you know, some of the comments that Harry made at the opening and closing ceremony. So I think we had sort of a clear legacy strategy and, and, and I think we got sort of deliverables around that. We stood up Veterans Sports Australia. I think, you know, yeah, I always say if, there's, if there is anything positive that's sort of come out of the conflict, so, uh, you know, since, since 2001, it's sort of an acceptance of conversations around PTSD and so forth because that's relevant to a whole other segment of society that, you know, um, you think of first responders, cops and, and ambos and so forth. So I think that's positive and, and advanced that. I think, you know, for me, you know, I went through the Navy at, at a funny stage where sort of sport was being sidelined really. You know, we'd do a port visit and you couldn't, you know, we weren't allowed to play play games of rugby, which had previously been such an important part because the people would think you know, hierarchy was too scared of, of injuries and so forth. And so I think, you know, the putting sport back on the agenda and saying, you know, fundamentally Invictus was just saying sport, sport is a positive thing. So I think that was all really positive. And then, you know, but right at the heart of it, I think there's, you know, the direct benefit it had on the, the 500 competitors and, and, the, and, the, the, and their fa- the thousand family and friends that could come. Simple things like babysitting service, meaning that the, the husband and wife were able to go out for dinner for the first time since they'd come back from operational service. Um, simple things like that. But then just the sheer magnitude of the story, the stories of, of individuals. So one of the things we did, which was sort of, uh, you know, it was sort of entrepreneurship uh, within the Invictus Games, was we put two boats in the in the Sydney Hobart, one crewed by Australians, one one crewed by UK vets, created little ashes on water and we, you know, we raised um, additional funding around that. And I was lucky enough to join the, the Aussie boat and it was amazing watching these sort of people come out of the shell just over over a two-week period. And just all those things that people miss from being in the military, you know, sense of purpose, sense of team, sense of camaraderie and sense of identity. And so, you know, it was great watching these 16 guys and girls come out of their shells and the smiles were turned to their faces over sort of a three-week period of, you know, their training and then the race. But I think, you know, and, and then it was just absolutely summed up to me one night when we sort of just before Christmas, so, you know, we were about to have a couple of days off but before doing, doing the actual race. And uh, one of the guys, a, a British guy, came up to me and he just said, you cannot understand how much it means to me just wearing this shirt with the union flag on my, on my shoulder again, just being in kit. You cannot understand how much that means to me. I've witnessed a small girl being crushed by a Humvee in Baghdad and I've never been able to pick up my two-year-old daughter and put her to bed. And here I am able to do something like participate in the, in the Sydney or Hobart when at home I, I find it hard to, to, to leave the couch. And that was just sort of one little story amongst 16 in that particular instance in the Hobart, but then times 500 of sort of the way sport, which is a pretty simple thing, is literally saving and, and changing lives for, for, the, for the better. Uh, that's amazing, mate. So you, you spoke a little bit before about Prince Harry's involvement. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't be a good host if I didn't ask the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was it like meeting him? What, what is he like? And I don't mean in a tabloid way. I mean specifically yeah. to this because I get a sense, although I don't know, that yeah. this is truly meaningful to him and this cause and, and he's 
you know, he's, he's putting some of his heart and soul into this and it's not just a, another appointment on his schedule. Yeah, no, I, so it's, it's really interesting, right? So if you look back and look at when he gave the opening speech in London 2014, so the first Invictus Games, he looks like a nervous young captain up giving a speech in front of the, the, the world stage. And then, but then you watch him, you know, get through to Sydney and so forth and he's this sort of accomplished, you know, world statesman really or statesman on the global stage, you know, leading conversations around, you know, brave conversations around mental health and so forth. So I think you're definitely right. He's almost sort of growing up. You get the sense that he's almost growing up in parallel to Invictus Games as a movement. It was one of the first things I noticed was, so when PK and I went and presented, you know, it was one of those sort of, wow, is this really happening moments as, as we all do before right. we give a presentation, you're sort of, you know, fumbling around trying to get the VGA cable into the laptop and, and you see this sort of hand being offered <laughs> and you turn around and, and it's him. You're like, wow, okay. But, you know, throughout our presentation, he was engaged, giving advice, asking questions and, and just, you know, clearly he's definitely anything but, but a figurehead. He's absolutely engaged with, with the thing, you know, and down to the detail. And people who were involved in the London Games were saying, you know, he was there the, the night before telling them to move the stage two inches to the left or, or whatever, but right down in the details. And, you know, it got, I guess he lives his life in the limelight, so he's got a really good sort of innate sense for, for what's going to look, you know, what's going to play well on, on in the public public eye and so forth. But definitely, I think he's deeply engaged. And, you know, I think people always say, what's he like? And they're always going to say, they always sort of think, you know, Larrikin and all that. And I think, I've got no idea what he's, what he's like in his private life. But I think, you know, the, the one thing that came across is just how professional he is. And before anything, before any engagement he does in the public eye, you know, how, how seriously he takes it, how, you know, how he listens to his brief, how he talks about what he, what's going to do and, and then goes and sort of goes and executes on it. But, and, and then all of that aside, you know, I think he's, he's just like anyone else, but just lead, leading an amazing life. So, you know, after the presentation that, that we gave, we sort of broke up and I think him and I were probably sort of the youngest in the room by, by a long way. So we sort of ended up having a cup of coffee together, as you sort of do in a in meeting like that. And I could have just as easily been chatting to a British Army officer sort of on, on exchange or, or liaison or something. Terrific, terrific. And so, mate, I mean, just in closing, what advice would you have for anyone who's, you know, maybe inside a big organisation wanting to, wanting to do some good, to have some impact above and beyond just, you know, helping the organisation to turn the cog to, you know, deliver shareholder value? What would your advice be? So I think, and as we've sort of spoken to Deloitte and employees about our experience and about the games and so forth, I think, you know, the advice I'd give is, don't underestimate what you can achieve and how you can take, you know, a pretty 90 degree turn to the sort of the usual line of travel to achieve something you want. And, you know, it's the old saying, of, you know, find something you're passionate about and, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that's very true. But to do that, it's not, it's not going to happen automatically. And you spoke about it before where you sort of, this was all going on particularly in those early days in and around sort of day-to-day work and, and on top of day-to-day work. So, you can take that sort of additional step, but it's amazing what you can achieve out of it. But it requires a hell of a lot of energy, effort and work to get there. And I suppose a tactical level sort of bit of advice is get directly to the decision makers hmm. and, and speak to decision makers directly. Don't try and go through you know, intermediaries and so forth because the message will get dulled down in, in the process. Good one. Good one. Anything else that I've missed, mate? Anything that you want to add? Um, <laughs> no, that's great. No. All right. No. Sweet, mate. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>
No, well, Ben, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. You've done so well. I'm really proud of you. And the, the Invictus Games is, um, you know, just a, a terrific event for such an amazing cause. And, you know, all of those blood, sweat and tears early on, particularly in those phases where you were uh, doing it as a, as a hobby and a, and a side hustle inside <laughs> the, the big corporation, mate. It's, um, yeah. it's all paid off and you should be really proud of yourself and the, and the team that you brought on to make it all happen. Well done. Beauty. No, thank you very much for having me, Anthony. Really great, great to have a chat and, and all the best. Good on you, mate. Thanks. Cheers. Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.